0: You get abandonment issues, and you get abandonment issues. We all get abandonment issues. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. To any new listeners, welcome to Adult Child. I already said that, but I am Andrea and I'm a shit show and I run things around here. Today, back by popular demand, we are diving deep with Joe Ryan, the host of the podcast, It's Not You, It's Your Trauma, talking to him about a bunch of things, one of which being the fear of abandonment. And, you know, I was just so glad that I could find somebody that has this fear of abandonment that can share with us all, like, what is that like, you know, because none of us have firsthand experience with that. I sure as hell do not. (sighs) Actually, in the Big Red Book, it says the common denominator among adult children from a variety of dysfunctional homes is chronic loss and abandonment. So yeah, when an adult child means instead of being like, oh, that's my favorite movie too, or oh, pizza's my favorite food too, we can be like, oh, I have the fear of abandonment too. How cool. (laughs) Now, some of us may have been physically abandoned. Others including myself, uh, were subjected to emotional abandonment. So emotional abandonment is when a parent or a caregiver does not provide a child with consistent, warm, or attentive interactions. So what are some examples of this? A parent not letting their children express themselves emotionally, a parent ridiculing their child, a parent putting too much pressure on their child to be perfect, or a parent parentifying their children. Now, I want to touch on this. We've talked about parentification. Why is this emotional abandonment? Because parentification is when our parents are no longer viewing us, treating us as children. This is when they are essentially abandoning their duties as parents. And in turn, we are essentially forced to abandon our childhoods and forced into these adult-like roles. So... The actual abandonment that we may have endured may differ between us, but it typically manifests or the fear of abandonment typically manifests in two ways in adulthood. The first being avoidance. So, you know, failing to commit a fear of commitment, not getting in long term relationships, being nitpicky or having unrealistic standards of what you're looking for in a partner being unable to experience emotional intimacy with somebody else. Or it can manifest in codependency. So attaching super quickly, even to an unavailable partner. That was my specialty. Uh, It can be staying in an unhealthy relationship because a bad relationship is better than no relationship at all, right? It could also be having unwanted sex because you feel like the person will lose interest in you if you don't do this. So I took a poll on Instagram and Facebook asking y'all, how does your fear of abandonment manifest? Avoidance or codependency? And so we got 61% for codependency and 39% for avoidance. Although I did have a handful of y'all say, is this a trick question? Because I have both. So similar to toxic shame, this fear of abandonment is a cumulative wound. You know, we have these core abandonment scenes or stories that we experience in childhood. And so I was thinking about what are these core abandonment scenes for me, for my childhood? And I've definitely shared some of them, but there's a few that I haven't, or at least two. So, you know, when you read about attachment theory, when you read about, childhood trauma, it always talks about how it's it's before the age of five or four that those experiences are, you know, the most impactful. So my first memory, it was when I was three years old and my parents took me to Disney World for the first time. And so we must have been near uh Jungle Cruise and Pirates of the Caribbean cuz I remember we were at a souvenir shop and my parents were looking at hats and I remember there being safari hats and tiki torches and so I told them that I wanted to go to the carousel I asked could we go to the carousel and they said yes and I took that as yes right this second so I started walking towards the carousel And then at a certain point, I turned around and realized that my parents had not been following me. And I found myself like in this sea of people. I got very upset, and a couple came up to me and took me to, you know, like a kiosk or another store. And then eventually my parents found me. Now, when I think about like traumatic memories, this really isn't one for me. I don't have any feelings or emotions um about it I don't really feel like it left a scar but I'm sure that it did but I remember in the 3rd grade in creative writing writing about this story and kind of thinking it was like funny and cute not writing about it as if it was some sort of traumatic memory and I also remember that uh you know how you know when you play barbies when you're younger you know you always have like your favorite Name at the time that you you name your Barbie, and so I guess my name at the time was Topanga because of Boy Meets World. So I remember that I wrote the story about the little girl that was me, but I named her Topanga. I also would like to tell you all that for a while I thought <laughs> I thought that Boy Meets World was called Boy Meets World like Boy Me. Like Boy Me was a first name, even though I've never heard that as a first name before, but it was B-O-Y-M-E, I guess, apostrophe S, Boy Me's World. Uh, Don't know who Boy Me was. Um, Yeah, Boy Me's World. Moving (laughs) along. Um, The next real memory or kind of abandonment scene that I have is I've talked about my my separation anxiety with my mom. So I think it was around nine years old when I woke up in the middle of the night with this intense panic and fear and feeling like I was going to die and needing to sleep with my mom in her bed. Um, and I kind of want to give the backstory to that story. So I found out my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. And as I said, that my dad traveled a lot for work and often stepped into the caretaker role. But I actually liked when my dad went out of town, not because I didn't want to be around him, but for two reasons. One being that my mom would make more fattening things for dinner when my dad wasn't in town. And then the second reason was we would have these little slumber parties. So she would put me to bed in my bed. And in the middle of the night, when I would wake up to pee, I would go and sleep in her room. And I even remember that I used to write a sign like a, on a piece of paper, I would write mom's bed and I would tape it on the on the toilet seat. Like I would put the lid down and I would tape it on the toilet seat. So I, in case I would forget when I woke up in the middle of the night to go in there. So it's one of those nights and I wake up, I see the sign and I walk into my mother's room and all of the lights are on and the bed is made. And I just remember like having this, that feeling that intense panic. And I walked downstairs and she was in the living room. The TV was on and she was passed out drunk. And I remember just waking her up and helping her walk up the stairs and into the bed and just hysterically, like hysterically crying and being just so, so scared and I've been thinking about that memory this week, like in preparation for doing this episode. And it's been bringing up uh, some feelings for me, you know, and that wasn't the first time that that happened or sorry, that wasn't the last time that that happened. But, you know, it kind of makes sense why I then woke up in in the middle of the night with this intense fear and panic um, and needing to sleep in my mom's bed and also having the fear of, you know, not being able to spend the night away from home. There wasn't a conscious fear that my mom's life was in danger, but clearly there was, you know, the subconscious fear there. So in in Pete Walker's book, Complex PTSD, he talks about how emotional abandonment is essentially the core of complex PTSD and that we have to peel back the layers of the onion, um, work through that stuff, but then eventually we will get to the core, which is this Emotional abandonment and neglect. And he says, an absence of parental loving interest and engagement, especially in the first few years, creates an overwhelming emptiness. Children are helpless and powerless for a long time. And when they sense that no one has their back, they feel scared, miserable, and disheartened. Much of that constant anxiety that adult survivors live is in this still aching fear that comes from having been so frighteningly abandoned. He also says, Emotional neglect alone causes children to abandon themselves and to give up on the formation of self. They do so to preserve an illusion of connection with the parent and to protect themselves from the danger of losing that tenuous connection. This typically requires a great deal of self-abdication, i.e., The forfeiture of self-esteem, self-confidence, self-care, self-interest, and self-protection. And this is why, you know, this childhood abandonment is the core of this shit and inflicts such a deep penetrating emotional wound that impacts us the rest of our lives. Because it's not just uh, leaving a scar of the loss or of the abandonment, but of all of the messages we consciously or subconsciously ingrain as a result of this abandonment, that we are unworthy, that we are unlovable, that it is our fault that we were abandoned, that it is because we weren't good enough. That is why we were abandoned, because of who we were at our core. And so then when we experience abandonment or perceived abandonment or even just loss. In adulthood, we feel that it is about us. We feel like it is because of who we are at our core. I've been reading this book called The Abandonment Recovery Workbook. I will include it in the show notes. And there was one line in particular that I wanted to read to y'all. It says, abandonment is a profound enough trauma to implant an invisible drain deep within the self that works insidiously to siphon off self-esteem from within. The paradox for abandonment survivors is that no matter what they do to build their self-esteem, the invisible wound of abandonment is always working to drain it away. (sighs) Oh, man. I really relate to that. And I think that that goes to show why just getting sober and, and working the steps, at least for me, just working the 12 steps, that didn't fix my abandonment wound. You know, as I said, in between relationships, when I would get over the heartbreak I would feel good about myself, right? I would go into the next relationship feeling confident that things would be different next time, that I felt so good about myself that I would not stay in an unacceptable relationship. But as soon as I would enter a relationship, just as that quote says, it would drain, it would suck away all of my self-esteem, all of my self-confidence, So what the fuck do we do about it? In all honesty, I think it is unrealistic to say that we will ever be completely free of this fear of abandonment. I hate to break it to you guys. I don't know if we can just make it as if it was never there to begin with, but we can dramatically decrease its severity and we can learn tools on, you know, how to handle it and confront it when things do arise. So the first part of it is addressing the abandonment trauma, addressing those abandonment scenes in therapy or in a support group, but just allowing ourselves to have those feelings, the feelings that we avoided feeling as kids, the feelings that we have avoided feeling as adults. Joe talks about this a lot in his podcast. I think that he's like, I'm going to deem him the king of sitting in your feelings, we have to have those feelings and, and work through those traumas. And then once we've done that, or simultaneously, I should say, we then start to develop the relationship with ourselves. We combat these faulty beliefs and these faulty fears that we hold about ourselves. And we begin to build self-esteem that is sustainable. We build self-esteem by doing esteemable actions. None of this shit is quick, y'all. It is it is our life's work, but it is um, work that is worth doing. and has the big, biggest payoff out of any work that we can do. So now for Joe. Uh, first, I just want to thank you all again for listening. Thanks for being here. Give me a damn five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Do it now. And also, if you're looking to help a girl out just a little bit more, Uh, or you're looking to participate in some support groups with some really fucking badass people. So if you're interested in doing that, you can join the Patreon, patreon.com slash child, And that's all. It is my pleasure to welcome back, back by popular demand, Joe Ryan, the host of the podcast. It's not you, it's your trauma. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Nice to be back.
0: My listeners love you. And want oh, to know thank that, you. They do. I- yes. I just had um, one of my listeners who's become a friend, Colleen. I just sent because she's a huge, she listens to you every morning. She often journals what you say. She writes. She sent me pictures of it. She'll just write down what you say, notes of it, and she goes, "I think I just like to let him know that he puts out a tremendous amount of good. He helped me deal with excruciating pain, and look at me now. I just want to thank him." Wow. Yeah, you're wow.
2: Um,
1: Wow. (laughs) I think she sent me. If it's the same person, she sent me a picture of her journaling, and I never had anybody in their own handwriting write back what I had said. Mm. It was it was very powerful. I really appreciated it.
0: Yeah, I told her that like it's just you're you're just a facade. I just told her that it's all just an act. (laughs) 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 So um I have listeners from questions or questions from listeners. I have some stuff I want to talk with you about, but I want to start off on a little bit of a lighter note and and get to know the real Joe. Okay. So first off, um, chunky or smooth peanut butter? Oh, smooth. Okay. Grape or strawberry jelly? Grape. Oh no, we might have to end this now. Uh, I save- would
1: I would prefer strawberries as a fruit okay. over grapes, but the jelly has to be Ugh. grape.
0: Oh God, no. Uh, favorite condiment? Oh God. I'm a condiment whore, so that's why I'm asking.
1: Condiment? Uh, salt.
0: So I had um I sent out a uh, a question to my listeners to ask me like what dysfunction what insanity looks like within a dysfunctional family and one girl responded she says one time I went insane related to family dysfunction and I dumped an entire bottle of ranch all over the room and my response was what a waste of ranch
2: <laughs> <laughs> The Hidden
1: Valley ranch is yeah. the best yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Um Can't what is that exactly what about um what is the last tv show that you binged
1: um or watch shows i don't binge that much anymore i just loop back around to entourage because uh-huh. um guys from entourage are from long island and they just uh-huh. did a show uh, you know i grew up on long island so i got back into that again
0: nice um what about wh- how old were you when you found out that santa claus wasn't real and how did you find out
1: Real young. Um, How did I find out? My mother was tired of hiding the presents. <laughs> and she's yeah. just like, here, here it is. Cause I, I started to make sense of it. I'm like, wait, what? How does this work? And she's like, I can't anymore here. It's just not real. I'm like, it's all right, good. Yeah. <laughs> Probably six.
0: Six. I think, I don't remember how old it was, maybe eight or seven or eight. And it was on Easter. And I was like, the Easter bunny isn't real, is it, mom? She's like, no. I was like, the tooth fairy isn't either. She's like, no. And then I was like, I had this like horrified look. I was like, Santa Claus? And she's like, no. Nope. Oh,
1: there was just a whole domino going that day. They all exactly, went down.
0: All of them. <laughs> um, okay. What about, what is your biggest pet peeve?
1: Endless small talk, talk via text.
0: Endless small talk via text. Mine is people chewing gum with their mouth open. I hate that shit.
1: Uh, wait, I might have one more. Talking when an artist is performing, like oh. you're showing up and you're watching greatness and people are talking about nonsense and they have no idea nobody's around them. It's mm-hmm. like quiet. There's an artist at work here.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll make like I make like commentary, but I think I've I've definitely no I've definitely annoyed a few people with with my commentary. <laughs> I have a hard time shutting up. Um, and then what else? Um, if you could choose one song that would play every time that you walk into a room, what would it be?
1: Oh, God. Oh, my God. Um, I don't know. I'm on a revivalist kick right now. So mm-hmm. soul's too loud.
0: Okay. I think mine would be Evil Woman by ELO.
1: Okay. Oh, wow. You're going back. I'm <laughs> going in the catalog.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, a, I'm an old soul. Um, okay. And then last question. Tell me something that once made you cringe that now you find funny.
1: Uh, wow. Um, that made me cringe that I now find funny. I think of the stuff that I used to hide like I look at it now and it's like, really, you were hiding that? That was just so ridiculous. It's not that big of a deal.
0: Uh-huh-huh. Uh-huh. Mine would be like, I don't know, every single relationship. I, I mean I think <laughs> I think it still makes me cringe, but at least I can also laugh at it as well. So
1: <laughs> well, we gotta grow from it, right? There's a reason yeah, we went down that path.
0: Yeah, I know I actually was just thinking about how I should write a personal letter to all of the all of my picks for my broken picker and 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 thank them for everything and actually sign it from signed the entire adult child podcast audience <laughs>
1: <laughs> you had a great post about your past relationships i forget what it was exactly mm. about how i'm so good at picking men what yeah, I
0: it? said if, I said if you ever is essentially like I have a horrible ticker picker. If you've ever dated me, please get help. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think any of my exes follow me, but I really wish they did.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was that was funny. <laughs> I completely related.
0: <laughs> oh lord. Um well, cool. So, um I was listening to your episode from this week about fear. Mm. And I thought you had some interesting shit to say. The one that I I thought was really interesting. It's something that I've thought about when you were talking about just like knowing that the fear is there, but not being able to identify what it is. You know, I thought about that a lot too. Like how do we, you know, with an adult child, the core problem is, are these faulty beliefs and fears that we, we hold, but in order to reprogram, we have to know what the fuck those are. And that can be hard.
1: It is. I mean, I've been. I haven't talked about it a lot in the past. It's recently uh, I've been talking more about like the abandonment issue for me because that's that's still the one that I, I struggle with the most. And intellectually, I understand it. It mm-hmm. makes complete sense why I would have the internal reaction that I have, but I can't seem to catch myself. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the nervous system ratchets up, the self hate kicks in, and I just fall into an abyss. And I don't understand why exactly or how to stop it. It doesn't last as long as it used to. Mm-hmm. So there's a point of intellectually knowing why the fear is there and then slowly start moving into the fear emotionally to start feeling it. So I, I know a lot of things intellectually, but mm-hmm. I can't fix them or heal them until I ex- re-experience the pain of the wound that, that Mm -hmm. comes up. And this one for me is extremely difficult to get a handle on.
0: What is one fear that you feel like you've worked through?
1: Um, I guess a lot of it is the vulnerability. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was very guarded. I was a people pleaser. I was a showman. I put on a facade. Nobody was really going to get to the bottom of me. Nobody was going to see. And I get I show up now more vulnerable and real and I show people who I am more and I'm less afraid of being judged for what I had thought was unlovable.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would imagine, obviously the podcast helps with that, but I would imagine working with people one-on-one too plays a role in that. So I was just wondering if you could talk about What healing and growth has looked like for you? If there's been anything that you've noticed as far as coaching people one on one, how that's been a healing process for you?
1: It's very validating. Um, You know, you have somebody sitting across from you going into places that you have previously been alone, Mm -hmm. and they show up with it, and you can relate. And then you have the conversation about it. And the more people that I coach that come up with the same. I mean, the feelings underneath are the same, it's, it's how we got to those feelings that we try to uncover, but the validation of just be not being alone in this anymore and having people show up and express and trust you enough to be vulnerable with you allows me to be more vulnerable with myself in sessions Mm
2: -hmm. that I get
1: to carry that forward in life.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Like it's a safe place to be you. And it's a safe place to go to your deep and your dark and your fears and things that you don't want others to see publicly. And we're doing it privately. Like, I wish the whole world could be that way. And I know it's unrealistic, but it gives you a sense of who you are and what you went through that you don't have to be ashamed of it because you're not the only one anymore or you don't feel like you're the only one.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And then also just having the belief that healing is possible, which I think is, you know, hard. I think I talked about this in my episode this week as well, about just how we have this belief that we're inherently flawed and unfixable and getting to a point where, I mean, I think in order for us to begin healing, we have to just have the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest bit of faith that things could get better, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's the the shame that keeps us isolated. So I, you know, I don't make mistakes. I'm just one big mistake. So I have to use a lot of energy to be perfect when I enter the world and show myself. And then I isolate the rest of the time and try to get up strength and energy to put on this facade so nobody can see through it. Coming out of hiding is is the is a huge part of this healing. See, I'm I'm ashamed that I'm an embarrassed. By who I am. So I'm not going to show anybody that. By coming out and showing myself imperfect, messy, um, vulnerable, raw, real, that's hard. That's hard because people are putting on a facade to look shiny to cover up rust, Mm -hmm. right? You're painting over this rust, and eventually the rust goes through, and you have to constantly keep painting over. What we really need to do is sand down that rust, get to the metal, and then paint it so the rust don't come through. But the hard part is pushing through and being seen imperfect. Because if I was ever less than perfect, I was abandoned, I was hit, I was abused, I was punished. So I learned real quick that you better be real shiny, real glossy, because anything else is All not the acceptable. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, how has what do your kids think about the podcast and everything? I don't been- know
1: if they listen they're, um, Some, one of my clients said, your kids must be real lucky to have you as a father. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I asked them that they're going to tell you something different. I'm annoying. You know, I'm stupid. I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't think, I think, you know, I mean, they're, they're young. So I think they're kind of, Partly embarrassed. I don't know. I don't think they've ever listened. They see my stuff on Instagram, I'm sure, but we don't really talk about it much. I asked them if they've ever listened. They said, no. I said, is there anything you want to talk about or ask me about? And they're like, no, we're good. good. So I think when they get a little bit older, um, it may resonate a little with them. And hopefully they don't identify with it as much as I do because I want to feel like I did <laughs> a halfway decent job.
0: Well, but you're doing the work now. So, yeah. If that, if that does happen, you can be there um, when you started it did you did you sit them down and be like "Hey, I want to let you know i 'm doing this
1: no it was uh, it was a Christmas morning um, you know i haven 't hadn 't spoken to my family in a couple of years at that point. They were with their mother. I was alone the phone didn 't ring didn 't get any invites, sunk into this huge abyss and <sighs> Didn't really know how to get out of it. I just felt like I was backed in the corner and writing for me was always a, a an outlet and it wasn't working anymore. So I just basically said, let me try speaking. Maybe that'll satisfy. And then I let a friend of mine listen and he was like, this should be a podcast. And I'm like, no, it shouldn't. <laughs> We're good right where it is in private. But I felt I had gotten so much out of just expressing And it took me below all the self-consciousness because nobody was going to hear it ever so that I didn't have to judge myself as I was speaking. And I realized that I I, I took myself to a place that I really don't think I've ever been within me. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: it was just this stream of consciousness that came out. And I felt a lot lighter. And then I went and recorded three or four different things in like three days. And I felt started to feel better. And I'm like, well, maybe this is my path out to figure out who I am and what's bothering me. And I've really never, ever thought that I would ever let anybody hear it. And it was painful to put it out there. I mean, I just, even today, you know, the one that I put out this week was so painful for me to get to. And, you know, I sit there and I'm like, I don't really know if I want people knowing this. Mm. But I, me knowing it and getting it out is one thing. For me, the rest of the healing is putting it out in the world because then I don't have to be ashamed and embarrassed by it, even though I am for a couple of weeks after it's out, but then I make myself okay with it. And it's just another level of foundation within myself that I'm standing on.
0: But then how, so then how did you let your kids know about the podcast though?
1: Um, I never told them, but they followed me on Instagram because I like <laughs> to take I'm like i like into photography. See if I was smart, which I'm not, I would have would created have a whole them. new account that oh, nobody knew yeah, about. Yeah. I just added it on to the account I had. Uh-huh. So they started to see it and they stopped showing up a lot m- less on Instagram. Like I barely, I don't even know if they're paying attention anymore, but with the photography, they would like stuff.
2: Uh-huh.
1: The quotes that I started putting up, they started to disappear.
0: Uh Oh, that's funny. Yeah, they hid you from there so they don't have to see that shit, I'm sure. I when I talked to my parents about it, um, I was really nervous (laughs) to tell them. Um, but they were, you know, supportive. And I just explained to them that that this isn't that the main point that I wanted to portray to them was that growing up in a dysfunctional family and that growing up in a loving family aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, you know.
1: Right. So they know about it and they've listened mm-hmm. to your
0: podcast? My dad hasn't listened to it. My mom's listened to some of them.
1: All right. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard, you know, cuz I've gotten to a point where the anger towards my upbringing is gone and a lot of this work has gotten me there. I I needed to go through this process to get to the other side. And you grow up in, you know, in a shame-based family, there's no talk rules. Like you don't talk, we have to show perfect to everybody. And we're not going to talk about anything that's not perfect. So breaking all of those no talk rules to put Mm -hmm. my stuff out there was difficult because I still, that's just how I was conditioned to take care of other people's feelings before my own. And I had to fight through that to put that out there if you know, and I know you've listened, but I never blame. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I never put out specific things that had happened. I keep it very general. I know they had abuse. Mm -hmm. I know that they grew up tough. Mm -hmm. I know that they probably did the best they could. And it wasn't about me not being worth, you know, my self worth. It was just they weren't capable. And when you do the work and you get further and further down the line, you start to realize that and the better you feel about it. See, I needed validation. I needed an apology. I needed them to meet me halfway. The day I realized none of that was ever going to happen was the day I started to take responsibility for my own feelings and stopped mm-hmm. blaming them. I had to leave because I couldn't handle the judgment and the guilt and the shame that I felt about doing what I was doing and the work I was doing. But I don't have the anger that I once had. Mm-hmm. I f- barely feel any anger in my body. Yeah, and the more you blame and the more you put it on them, the less responsibility mm-hmm. you're taking for yourself. The longer this process takes, um, and it's it's. E- I didn't know where to put all of that hurt,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I really truly wanted somebody to take it away f- for me. And I just kept waiting, and I kept waiting. And I kept waiting and it never came. So that was, the, that was the shift for me. You know, I don't hate them. I don't resent them. I just had to get away and find out who I was without them because yeah. I lived for that family system and the role that I, I was born into and molded into. And I, that's not who I wanted to be. I wanted to find out who I really truly am. And that's the process.
0: Yeah, that was kind of a realization I had recently was that, you know, I've never, I don't feel like I've ever really experienced family with my family itself. You know, like the the feeling or the experience of what family is. Like I've, I felt that with friends, but with my actual like family, I don't think I have.
1: Yeah. When, you know, my family is very shame-based and They can't face their own reality. So they create shiny for other people to see, look how good we are. Look how well adjusted. Look how, you know, and inside you're dying inside. It's a mess behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. And there's no connection. There was no emotional connection because they didn't have the capability of it. They don't know Mm -hmm. what that looks like. And it's fearful to them. And me being deep and emotionally sensitive I need that in my life Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and it never came from there. So Mm. I couldn't find it. So for me it was, well, let's just numb out to get through the process of belonging to yourself and having an emotional connection with yourself takes away the need of having to have it from outside Mm-hmm. Do I still want it? Do I still desire it? Do I, yes, absolutely. But it's not like tapping a vein where I need this to get through the day. Yeah. I can give myself an emotional connection where I don't need people to do it for me. But that's a hard process because it's never been ma- modeled. You're living in a house where there is no emotional connection. It's rage. It's walls. It's passive aggressive. It's control. It's manipulation. Like There's no love in that.
0: Mm-hmm. There's no
1: connection in that. There's or no just emotional... denial
0: or numbness.
1: Yeah, let's just get through the day and look shiny. Well, I'm hurting over here. Shut the fuck up. I don't yeah. care how much you're hurting. <laughs> you're gonna look good publicly. Exactly. So stuff it down and show the fuck up. Exactly. And it's like I'm like I'm five.
0: Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> like my. Foot just how do I fell do off? that? My foot just fell off. I need to go to doctor. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Man. So on that, um, feel free to not answer, but I wanted to know if you want to share a little bit about what the process of dating has been like for you.
1: (laughs) Oh boy. Um,
0: well, first of all, when, okay. So how long have you been into this healing shit? When did you have your first kind of meltdown? Well, okay. There's been many meltdowns. I understand that. But when did you really start digging into this shit?
1: Um, so the person I mattered most to in my life was my grandfather.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: He died suddenly when I was 17. I ended up being hospitalized for drugs and alcohol. I went off the rails. Um, And you were
0: sober for a while.
1: I did, did about 17 years sober. Um, and then I think the real turn for me was, so in that sobriety, I had built up the false self and the perfect life. I had a successful business, I had a house, I had a marriage, I had two kids, I had all of that. The the business fails.
0: The marriage fails. And the marriage
1: went right after it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I met this woman and I realized it was the first time I was ever in love because it's relative, right? All I knew is what I knew. And then I met this woman and she got hit by a car. So I lost everything that I built my life up to. And I was- She didn't die though,
0: right? Didn't, but she was paralyzed? Or she
1: died? She, uh, she didn't die. She wasn't paralyzed. She had a traumatic brain injury, didn't know who I was. Yeah, okay, for, that's what I remember. For a while, um, you know, carrying it to the bath, the whole thing. Like, How long it was, were
0: y'all dating before the car accident happened?
1: Uh, about a year. Okay about a year. And it, the interesting part was that morning uh, we went away on vacation and she's like, I have to talk to you. And I'm like, we're on vacation. You cannot do this out of state. Like do this at home, please. <laughs> like, I can't be on a fucking plane sitting next to you in a breakup. Yeah, And she, she just said these beautiful things to me. And she said, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. How do you feel about that? Mm. And I said, well, you just made me extremely happy. And she goes, I'm going to go for a jog. Do you want to go? And I said, listen, I'm really tired. I said, I think I'm just going to go hit the hot tub. And I walked her out the front door and I said, don't go to the right. There's no sidewalks. Go up to the beach and jog on the sidewalk. And she never came back. And I found her several hours later. Um, And it was just just a mess. Mm -hmm. She was almost dead. Anyway, that uh, that the strength that I had found... To pull my shit together to get her through and her mother and everybody was beyond comprehension to me. I don't know how it had happened. When we got back home and her mother started to take more care of her, my role diminished. I was left with feelings because it was constant caretaking. I didn't have a chance to look at myself. And then I ended up, I fell apart.
0: Mm -hmm. And is that when you started to drink again?
1: Yeah. I threw away 17 years of sobriety. Um, I went, I went hard (laughs) uh, for for a while. And then one day I went too far and I woke up on, I don't know where I was. I was in In somebody somebody else's
0: yard. Yeah. I remember you saying that. Yeah. On a
1: lounge (laughs) chair. Um, didn't know where my car was, didn't know how I spent the evening, and it scared the shit out of me. And that brought me back to some kind of reality. And that was that was the start of it for me. I was like, I can't go down this path. I have two children that rely on me. I cannot abandon them. I cannot go down this path. I have too much to lose. I am I I can't do that to them. Mm -hmm. And that was a slow turn back to just sitting with the feelings and trying to figure them out. I ended up homeless. I had to move into this guy's spare room and I I was a, I was a fucking mess and I had always been a hustler. I had always been, you know, lively, outgoing. And, and I just went into this abyss and I didn't know how to get out of it. And I just kept sitting in it. I kept sitting in it and you know, I had this, um, I ended up with dating this woman and she pressured me really hard and it brought me back to this childhood thing. And, you know, I had this huge breakdown and I remembered a lot of shit and I didn't know what to do after that. Like, I'm like, what the fuck do I do with all of this new information? How many years like, ago is this? Five. Okay. And then I ended up finding, I you know, went to find a therapist fired three of them like immediately and then found one that was really good for me and we kept working through the original pain of the experiences that i had to fucking deal with and that was a huge turn for me and she said to me one day she goes we have this event would you like to speak at it i'm like publicly you nuts like fuck no no There's no way I am standing in front of a room full of people telling my fucking story. I'm just not ready. I walked out of the session and I stopped. I turned around and went back into her office. I said, I'll do it. And that was the start for me. I got up there and we were sitting. It's such a funny story because we're sitting there and she grabbed my arm. She goes, you're not running out, are you? I'm like, no, I'll do it. She goes, you don't look okay. I said, oh, I'm the furthest thing from okay right now. <laughs> they called my name and I went up and I didn't even know what I was going to say, how I was going to say it. And I started speaking. And mm-hmm. depending on what I was talking about, different pe- people in the room were getting emotional and crying. Mm-hmm. And it was this great cathartic experience. And people came up and they hugged me and they thanked me. And I was like, what? This is fucking weird. <laughs> um, and that's, that stuck with me. It helped heal me to get it out and come out of hiding. Like i really had to go into deep shame and I put it out there in the room. And instead of being judged, I was embraced. And I'm like, what is this new experience? I mean, I went through the rooms in AA, mm-hmm. but I never talked about anything like this. Mm-hmm. So I think something clicked internally in me where it was like, and I didn't know it at the time because it was, it, there was a year and a half after that, that, I started actually recording. And I never really put it together until about three years after the podcast started that. I'm like, wait, that was what got me here, even though mm. I didn't know it at the time. Mm. And then I just kept sitting with feelings and journaling and speaking. And, you know, I was honestly, I was miserable. I was absolutely put myself in the worst possible misery because it's in me. That sadness, that hurt, that misery is in me. And I've been avoiding it and running away from it that I had to lean into it and I let it kick the shit out of me. And it did. I was emotionally crippled for two years living in some guy's room, spare room.
0: Mm.
1: And that's been a slow climb back up ever since.
0: And now it looks like you're living in a, you know, in a, um, a dirty basement with that background you got there. <laughs> so you're it's, still it's living my... in an alley.
1: <laughs> it's, it's a typical New York, Manhattan apartment. It's tiny and it ain't pretty.
0: <laughs> for the backdrop. Hence, for the brick wall shower curtain. <laughs> That's
1: pretty much what it is. I'm actually in my bathroom right now. That is my shower behind oh, us. Oh,
0: nice. You're actually sitting in the tub. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. Okay. But so what I wanted to ask you was how long did you stay single until you started to try to dip your toe back in the pond?
1: Oh God. A while I was, you know, the loneliness, the sadness, when you're shame-based, you feel lonely. So not being around friends or family or relationships put me in it more, but I knew I wasn't ready. And I guess the way it started, I was out one night I met. we were at the bar having appetizers and some girl, woman started talking to me. I dated her for a little while and I was like, listen, I can't do this. And she's like, I said, I'm a shell of myself. I don't feel Mm -hmm. like a man. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to give. This is too emotionally draining for me. I have a lot of work to do.
0: And she was like, I can help you. She's like, allow me. She she
1: was smart. (laughs) She was like, I appreciate you letting me know. Take care.
2: Like, well,
0: you know what? That's great, though. That means that your picker was somewhat fixed if she were to say that, because if she was like, please don't leave me, that would be even worse. uh,
1: Yeah. I wasn't staying no matter what she said. (laughs) It wasn't good for me. It definitely was not fair for her. Yeah. And then I don't know, it was about nine months later, I tried again and I That was the relationship that led me to the memories that I wasn't aware of. And then Mm -hmm. after that, I took, I think it was a little over three years of not dating. I dated three people, two, well, two, one wasn't really dating, but they were, they didn't last more than a couple of weeks because I Mm -hmm. knew I wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. And then that was it. I think it was almost probably close to two years where I didn't even entertain it at all. And I did a lot of work on myself and then somebody slipped into my inbox and started talking and I found out we were neighbors and we went out a couple of times and it kind of just dissipated. And I was like, that didn't feel so bad. That didn't feel Mm. so awkward. I'm Mm. like, maybe I am ready. Maybe she came along for the right reasons just to kind of, you know, tweak my curiosity. Can I do this again? (laughs) And, and then I started, I wouldn't say actively dating, I would go on a dating app and just look and see what was there and then maybe message here or there, but it wasn't, it wasn't a priority in my life anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I knew that if somebody was supposed to show up, they were going to show up and I can't use somebody to take away my neededness and my loneliness. That's my job. So I slowly started dating that way. And Mm. it's, um, you know, dating now is easy. It's, it's the vulnerability that comes when you make that commitment to somebody, because that starts to bring up a lot of the issues, right? Abandonment. Am I good enough? Is she leaving? Am I giving her enough? Mm-hmm. Is she getting enough? Am I getting enough? Like I wasn't aware back then to to think about these things, but I fe- I feel my way through it. I don't think my way into it anymore. So if it feels right, if it doesn't feel right, I know not to stay anymore. If it feels right, I go start to become more vulnerable and more open. And I show myself more because I feel like that person deserves that. And I would like the same in return, Mm -hmm. you know, and why at this point would I want to play games? You know, believe me, I'd like to pretend I'm James Dean and all cool and suave, but that ain't me (laughs) at all. I have no fucking game. I just, you know, if I'm uncomfortable, I'm gonna let you know. If I'm confident, I'll let you know. But I I, I don't have the energy to play the games anymore because it it it's fake. It's not yeah. real. And how are you going to have anything real if you're not real?
0: Mm. Mm. What about um disclosing yourself and sharing your story? What what has that looked like as far as like <laughs> in dating and like you know, um, as far as sharing about your, your trauma?
1: Well, when I first started dating, I didn't mention any of it at mm-hmm. all. Um, I didn't mention what I do. I didn't mention any, any of the podcast, nothing. And so when it got around to it and I did mention it or if it came up, some people left after they listened, um, <laughs> which I get, um, Now I've, I feel like I've owned who I am and what I do and my past and my history enough where it says right on the dating site, what I do, who I am, go look at it. Mm -hmm. If you resonate with this, contact me. If not great, like don't honestly, don't waste my time. I don't have, I'm not here for my ego to be stroked. I'm not here to use you. I'm not here to get myself filled up from somebody else. Like I'm looking for something real so the first thing they have to see is real. And, you know, I don't know how many people pass by because, because of it. Do they listen and go, oh, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but honestly, I don't care because I want I want genuine and I want to grow with somebody.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't have
1: time or energy for, for the bullshit anymore.
0: Mm, true that. Yeah, it <laughs> reminds me of this one time I matched with a guy in a dating app and I was doing a little light stalking um, and I saw that he was like a relationship coach, but like for women. And I was like, are you just trying to like recruit me?
2: Wow.
1: <laughs> wow. I'll tell you what I know about women could fill a thimble. Um, there's <laughs> Like
0: what about your audience? The people that listen to the podcast, what is your demographics? Is it mostly men? Half and no. half, mostly women.
1: It's about, uh, I'm not sure today, but it's at least 75% women.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. High, high female Mm
0: -hmm. listenership. Yeah. That's mine's about 70, 75% women, I would say. Um, It's hard hard for men.
1: It's hard for men to go there. I have had such a hard time. I've always been sensitive. So I ran with as rough of a crowd as I could without getting killed. Um, Mm -hmm. Just to, it's like, look how tough these guys are around me. I must be tough too, (laughs) type of thing. Mm -hmm. So learning how to own the sensitivity, there's that arc that happens where when I started moving into it, I felt really weak Mm -hmm. and passive and not strong and unmanly. But when you start to own your vulnerability and your sensitivity, it's really hard for somebody to hurt me with it. Like you can call me whatever you want negatively in that way. And I'm okay now where, you know, I probably would have started swinging 25 years ago. Like you can't say that to me. And I'm going to show you that I'm not that (laughs) now it's like, you know what? I am sensitive. I am emotional. I'm human. I'm not a man. I'm just human. Mm -hmm. And if we can get rid of that gender bullshit and everybody starts showing up on an emotional level, that's real. Fucking the world changes, but uh, I don't expect that to happen anytime soon.
0: Yeah, no shit. No, I love when I get the messages from the dudes. And I just want to give out a shout out to Rick, who we both know. He is the shit. And he actually has a question. I asked him. I asked my (laughs) Patreon people if they had questions. So I'm going to read. So this is what Rick said. He goes. How about some advice for someone starting out on this journey? Someone who is a jumbled mess, full of information overload and heading off into 30 different directions all at once. Starting things and moving on to something else halfway through. I can relate, Rick, not because of lack of interest, just finding the next shiny object, LOL. I guess much of the way I've run my entire uh, much of the way I have run my entire alcohol life, Ugh alcoholic life.
1: Well, I, I think a lot of that is we don't know who we are, right? So when we start doing this work, we're in 800 different directions. We are trying; we're not trying to feel good. We're just trying not to feel bad. Yeah. So I'm looking for like a life preserver to give me some kind of good feeling as I'm doing this incredibly difficult, painful work. And I kept bouncing out to different things, and some things would satisfy me for a little while and wear off quick. And other things I would try didn't speak to me at all. So the bouncing around and being in 800 different directions I think is for me was part of the process. And I start I always explain it as a funnel. It's that wide end of the funnel at the beginning where I'm bouncing off of every edge trying to find something to grab onto. I start to realize that a lot of it doesn't mean what I thought it was going to mean and I start going down that funnel into the, towards the spout where it gets narrower.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: I I start to find things and hold onto them and live them. More and they feel good more in an authentic way without applause. See, I'm codependent, I need a narcissistic supply, so I'm always looking for applause. Mm -hmm. What I ended up doing was weaning off of the applause and trying to find stuff that made me feel good without anybody around. Mm -hmm. And then they became part of my daily life, and I still do a lot of them to this day. And I need them to keep me centered and on track. So I think it's normal to be bouncing around at the beginning. You will start to refine who you are and things that I did find comfort in say three years ago, they don't speak to me as much now. So they've kind of, I've let them go, but I've picked up other things. So it's, you're refining who you are and figuring out as you go along and it's narrowing down that funnel to the to the narrow end of the spout. And then you get comfortable there and you know who you are. And then it's the reverse. So now you're in that spout. Now there's another funnel on the other side.
2: Mm-hmm. Then
1: your world starts to open. So you have to narrow down to figure out who you are, become mm-hmm. safe in the world that you're living in and comfortable and confident. And then you start slowly moving out and widening again.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You hear that, Rick? Okay, I'm another one. Hey, Rick. <laughs> hey, Rick. We love you, Rick. Um, okay. So somebody asked me, I don't know how to word this as a specific question, but something about I'm dealing with is, is very suppressed memories surfacing the more I heal. Maybe if you could talk something about that, how the stuff you lost starts to come back. Uh, because at this point I'm like in my life, I'm like, well, fuck, why now? I know you've experienced this.
1: Yeah. So I guess the easiest way to explain it is. I buried parts of me. There mm-hmm. were certain things that weren't acceptable. So I tuck them away. I don't even know they're tucked away. They're just mm-hmm. so far away that I don't even know they're in me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I have a thousand layers of defenses that keep me from feeling this feeling.
2: hmm
1: I start with the top layer. And for most of us, it's addiction, right? That's Mm. for me was the top layer. Let's peel away the addiction and let's see what's under it. And it's like, fuck, no, please. That is way too painful. Give me the booze back, please. So when you take away the addiction, you start to feel. The reason the addiction is there is not to feel. Yep. As you take those top layers away and you start feeling more, you get comfortable with the discomfort of those feelings and you learn how to manage them. And they almost start to dissipate. Every layer that I pull away has the same feel after. I feel light. I feel airy. Mm-hmm. I feel good. I feel comfortable. I feel confident. Whether it's a day, a week, or a month, all of a sudden feelings start to rise. I created space within me. The next layer starts to come up. hmm Then I start to deal with those feelings. Where, What are they? Why are they there? Where are they leading? Why do I feel uncomfortable? And I start to work through that and sit with them and process and write and talk about it. Until that light bulb clicks, I get that moment of clarity where I start to smile and feel good, and I've conquered this next layer. And then we walk nice for a little while, and then, boom, the next one comes up. Mm -hmm. It's a never-ending process. The thing is, you get better (laughs) at your process. Yeah. So- I'm at the point now when I'm leaning into uncomfortable. I'm leaning into vulnerable. I'm leaning into the pain because I know on the other side of that is joy.
0: So what does that look like? What does leaning into pain look like for you?
1: A lot of it is sitting very still and quiet and trying not to attach emotionally or mentally to the pain. So I like to go into my head because it takes Mm -hmm. away the feelings. Mm -hmm. When I can't handle the thought process and it's looping too much, I go into self, uh, you know, uh, hate, self-hate and worthlessness, and then that'll drag me into my shame. So I try to stay somewhere in the middle neutral where I don't attach the thoughts, I don't attach the feelings, and I breathe into the pain and the discomfort, and I pay attention to where it is in my body, and I let it start to, because I keep it all in my chest. Mm. So I relax my chest, and it goes up into my head, and my head starts to throb. Like, so emotions are energy, emotion. I've stuffed energy down. It wants to come up and be felt. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I allow that energy to take over my entire body as I'm laying there. At some point, it will lead me to thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories. And it's like, click. Mm -hmm. When I was nine, this happened. And I've been reacting the same way. Over and over and over again, I understand why the reaction is there and why my body is reacting the way it is. And then I don't, my body does not react as intense the next time this comes up.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: I just keep working it and working it. And I keep going back to it. I basically am putting myself back as a nine-year-old child emotionally. Mm -hmm. And I'm feeling the fear and the terror and the abandonment and the hurt Mm -hmm. and the abuse that that nine-year-old felt. Mm-hmm. As an adult, and I'm teaching myself that I am stronger than the feelings my nervous system and body is producing.
0: Mm. And then you go eat a a smooth peanut butter and grape sandwich. <laughs>
1: <laughs> then I throw the headphones on. I get on my bike and I bike down Broadway, and all the trauma falls out my ears.
0: <laughs> and onto the car behind you. <laughs>
1: That's right. No, I'm taking it for the next guy.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh well, this has been great. I wanna I wanted you to talk about um, the event that you have coming up,
1: January 29th. New York City. We are just finishing the final details on getting the space and putting it all together. Um, going to announce it in a couple of days. It's, it's you a, and who? Uh, Drew and Drew from the Anxious Truth. So we're going to okay. tackle it from anxiety from one end, trauma from the other. The two of us are going to meet somewhere in the middle. Um, we're really excited about it. this. Is I'm I'm very 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 happy to be doing it. I'm nervous, <laughs> but. It's going to be good. So, um, I should have stuff on the website and Instagram probably within about 4 or 5 days.
0: That's awesome. Or maybe yeah. by
1: the time this comes out, I don't know.
0: I'm going to yeah, next yeah, I'm going to release it on um, Wednesday, next Wednesday. So hopefully it will be up by then. Yeah, I think that that's so cool. And so you said it's going to be kind of you'll speak and then also a large part of it will be Q&A, correct?
1: So we're going to do about 20 25 minutes of talking each. We're going to have the rest of it's going to be Q&A. It's going to be three hours. We're going to have danishes and donuts and coffee. It's going to be fun. Oh,
0: yeah. We should do something <laughs> like that virtually, but we'll but we'll just have to have everybody bring their own donuts.
1: Yeah. Anytime. We should definitely do something together.
0: Yeah. So, well, this is great. So everyone, so, oh, also, t- um, so is your podcast strictly subscription based now or can people still listen to it on without it? It's,
1: every other episode is free. Maybe more, maybe more than that. Um, The subscription is four ninety nine a month.
0: Yeah, y'all can, y'all can afford that, okay? I think that you can. Um, If not, I don't know. Maybe one day. (laughs) It's (laughs) worth it. We work. We put so much work into this. It's like, I don't know. I spend so many fucking hours working on this every week. The
1: the easy well, it's not easy, but you know the, the the part that i like the most is speaking what i don't like is show notes artwork social media
0: yeah, web me pages like Sound there's messy. a lot
1: that goes into it
0: no i know there is a lot so oh, well wonderful well thank you so much we'll definitely have you back on again and i appreciate your vulnerability and as coco colleen said um you're adding so much good to this world so i'm so All glad right. our path's thank connected
1: thank you very much i appreciate it
2: let's go and
0: Well that wraps up today's episode. As always, you're welcome. That was some good ass shit. I mean, now that we know that he likes smooth peanut butter and grape jelly, I'm pretty sure that we are all healed. But even though that's, you know, even though we're you're healed, please still fucking listen to my podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, and I think that that live event that he's doing sounds really cool. And it also sparked an idea for me. Um, I would like to do well, first off, I don't know if for you guys who listen to when I was on um, Dr. Drew's podcast at the very end of that, he teased me about, you know, we should do some sort of public presentation or something. And I said, don't, don't tease me. (laughs) So I've been thinking about that and thinking about how, if I am to go to him, like with an idea that it needs to be, I I need to have a, a plan, not just like, Hey, let's do something. But what I was thinking, you know, I've received a lot of messages from people or emails, you know, people saying, I'm not an adult child. Like I didn't grow up in an alcoholic family, but I can relate or whatever. And my message to them is, An adult child is not somebody who just grew up in an alcoholic family. It is somebody that grew up in a dysfunctional family. So, not to deem you an an adult child, but I am. You're an adult child. And so, I just think it's really important that we get this message out about this term adult child and how it's not just about uh, growing up in an alcoholic home, but that it's about growing up in a dysfunctional home, which I read something that said seventy percent of families are dysfunctional, and also just to educate the public on what this looks like, or and especially therapists too, right? I just think that there's so much um, misdiagnosis going on when you know people are getting diagnosed with certain things, but in reality, I think it's it's quite possible that it's that it's complex PTSD unresolved childhood shit I'm not saying that that's everything but I think that there is a lot of that going on and so I just think it's so important that we spread this word about what the fuck an adult child is and so what I was thinking is like doing some sort of a like a virtual I don't know conference or workshop but kind of having it be like an adult child uh, like public service announcement And it could be, you know, several hours. And then I could have different guests to talk about different topics. You know, I could have Dr. Drew. I'd want to have, you know, Tian Dayton. I was thinking of asking Mark Wolin, the inherited trauma guy. I think he would be cool. Um, I would love to have like Joe and Paul Gilmartin and maybe that guy, Nathan, who had the memoir. Like, I'd love to have a section where it's like guys talking about this stuff, guys talking about their childhood trauma, so, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Putting it out there in the universe. Um, stay tuned. And what else? Um, check the show notes. You'll find links to Joe's shit in my social media. You can follow me at Adult Pod on Instagram and TikTok. Also, please hit me up. Uh, I love hearing from you guys, and I do my best to respond to each and every one of you. Um, next week, I'm excited for you guys to hear this. I'm talking to this woman. Um, her name is... Elizabeth Earnshaw. She's a couples therapist. I got to ask her a lot of questions about dealing with couples when one of them or both of them is an an adult child and also talking about how unresolved trauma, you know, plays a part in couples therapy. Um, So it's super interesting. So I'm excited for you guys to hear that. And that is it. So I'll see you next week. It's going to be super raw. I'm super vulnerable. And I'm super excited. I'll be here. It's going to be a goodie. I promise.
2: Yeah. What you're holding on to? But just let, let it all go. go. What's making you slow now? That's let it all go.